This is Kyle Killen, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast. Well, if you've been watching Twitter, you know that a show that I was really, really impressed with was Awake on NBC. And I'll say again, I think it was one of the best pilots in years. And so I went on Twitter, and I noticed that the creator of the show was also on Twitter, Kyle Killen, and I asked him, hey, you want to come on the TV Writer Podcast? And he said yes. And so I am so excited to bring an interview with Kyle Killen today. Uh, just a, a couple of quick hits. If you want more episodes, go to tvwriterpodcast.com or blip.tv slash Podcast. Also at the podcast site at tvwriterpodcast.com, you'll find a Twitter database with over 900 writers that continues to climb and lots of other great resources. Speaking about Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. Right now, on to my interview with Kyle Killen. And make sure you watch Awake on Thursday nights on NBC. This is Gray Jones, and I'm here with Kyle Killen, creator of Awake. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm very good. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the, taking the time for this. And honestly, I thought the Awake pilot was the best pilot I've seen in years. And we will get to talk Awake in a bit. But first, we want to start with where you got started. You grew up in Texas. Yeah, that's right. I grew up in a small town. Yeah, tell, tell me about that. And when did you get the writing bug, or did you know that you wanted to be in the in the film industry at that point? Yeah, to the extent that I uh, understood anything about what the, the film industry was. I mean, I, I knew I loved movies and TV and the telling and writing stories. I don't think I had a real conception of what anybody in the business did. I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. Mm. And you discovered USC's film school. Talk about going to USC. It was USC and NYU, and I applied to SC, and I don't think I actually expected to get in. It was one of those things where I had never written anything. I didn't have any shorts or anything to show them. It was really just an essay saying uh, how and why I loved film. Mm-hmm. And when I got in, it's, uh, I hadn't actually planned to go. It was really one of those things where I applied to apply and uh, didn't imagine I'd end up going, and then... And then I got in, and uh, and that sort of changed all the direction, and and, and off I went. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And now after SC, um, you you did a few odd jobs, but talk about that time a little bit. Well, you know, right out of USC, I did the uh, whole interning thing, and uh, you know, reading scripts and so on and so forth. I couldn't afford to do it for free the way many people do. I needed to um, I needed to actually earn money to live in Los Angeles, so. Mm-hmm. I also worked in a stock brokerage from three in the morning until one in the afternoon, and then when that was done, I would go to my internships. And oh my! That for me was a, a recipe for for burning out on LA and on film and on everything. So I left and and did a number of other things from tech support to construction and. I guess the one thing they all had in common is no matter what I was doing, I found a way to be writing about it. And that's sort of when I got the idea that I probably wasn't going to be able to shake writing. It was probably something that I was going to end up having to do. And so I kind of circled back through short fiction and started to play some short stories in different publications. And I won an award. And then I started to adapt 
the short stories back into screenplays. And that's sort of how I got back into film and, and back to Los Angeles. Very cool. Now, I, just so you know, I mean, this is episode 50 of the podcast, and I'm talking to people all the time. And what what people who want to break in are told about the industry is you have to get to Los Angeles, and that's where everything is going to happen. And I just find it so encouraging that in, in some ways, LA broke you. <laughs> it's like, I'm getting out of here, and yet it still happened. And And that is just so so encouraging. So so tell me about when you first started to um, get representation and sell things. How that felt? Well, to your point, LA not only broke me. Being broken, I think, is what saved me. I mean, being here for me at least, and a lot of people do it this way, and and it works for them. But for me, doing the internship and reading, you know, not just tons of scripts, but tons of bad scripts, scripts that I was only reading because they got the intern to read them because they weren't. They weren't of a quality that they needed anybody else to. And going into every coffee shop and opening my laptop and realizing that everybody else in that coffee shop also was an aspiring screenwriter, like, dying to do this job. It became oppressive. And all I could think about was the numbers. All I could think about was all the people who wanted to do this and how few positions there were. And so what would get me noticed and what kind of stories were good? You just start to think all the wrong ways, in my opinion. And mm. When I left and when I started doing other jobs, it was like I'd given up. I mean, it was like that wasn't going to happen. So when I did it, it wasn't, you know, hoping to impress my boss and get him to read a script and maybe recommend me. It was doing it because I wanted to. It was doing it because I had to. And mm. so I think the stuff that came out, there was a lot more freedom and a lot less fear because I just... It just needed to come out, and if it was any good, great. And if it wasn't, that was also that was also fine. So, I had a, I had a professor at USC who he said, you know, writing is like a heroin addiction, and if you can quit, you should. And mm. it's odd, but I always thought that was the best advice because if you can't, then eventually you're going to be forced to find your voice. Eventually, you're going to be forced to find that thing that makes you you and makes you special and makes you stick out. But if you can then it's really, it isn't for you. And there's no shame in that. Like, ultimately, there's something else that totally is for you. And, you know, your journey is about finding that thing. So getting out is oddly how I got in. Well, and, and it's really neat because that voice that you have is, I mean, it's a, it's a really daring voice. I mean, when it, when you you talk about the beaver story, Lone Star, Awake, I mean, these are these are not conventional stories. And, but I think that's what gives them so much appeal. Like if people talk about them, and and I I think if you if you just want to do the same old same old, yikes. <laughs> yeah, I think to some extent that that comes from how I got in. I mean the the fact that I didn't know enough to take it seriously, and then when people gave me opportunities, I always assumed that they were making a mistake and that it was uh, sort of my last shot. So I might as well do this instead of that. And I think some of the getting in so late and and feeling like it was probably always eventually going to go away gives you a little bit of freedom to say i guess as long as i'm here what if we do this and you're not you're not constantly protecting something you're actually I don't know. It just it frees you up to take risks. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, a great risk was the Beaver, which I think was your first big sale, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, so tell me about selling the Beaver and and what that experience was like. 
I had actually written a screenplay and I'd gotten representation and, uh, you know, a lot of things that as a, a, a young aspiring writer you think will, that'll do it for you. Like if I could just get this far mm-hmm. um, and I was super excited to pass those bars, but then you realize like you can't really live on having representation. You actually, you need to find a way to, to make money. And I wasn't. And so uh, my wife got pregnant with twins and, we talked about how different things were going to look in nine months and decided that really <laughs> I needed to take like sort of one last shot at the writing thing and, and figure out whether or not it was a career or a hobby. So we decided I would, I would just take one more chance and, and the beaver was the thing I wanted to take a chance on. And it, it actually started as a novel. It was something that um, I had started as a short story and then it, it got really long and then it got, insanely long so for the first five months of, of her pregnancy I was just I was just writing a novel and I had hundreds and hundreds of pages and I and the story had barely begun and there were long digressions about Matt Lauer was a major character like it was just kind of crazy and disconnected and full of nonsense and and then I remembered how short screenplays were and I thought I could just I should just turn this into a screenplay like that'll be done in a week or so and uh it wasn't it wasn't nearly that easy, but ultimately, a week before the twins were born, I, I handed it into my agent, and uh, a week after, I sold it to, to Steve Golan, and we started the long journey of, of producing it. Yeah, and uh, wow, it, it went through a, a few permutations in terms of the, the attachments, uh, eventually landed with, with Jodie Foster and, and Mel Gibson, and oh, man, unfortunately, that, that whole uh, public issue with Mel Gibson, I'm sure hurt the film, but, um, but it got made and you went to Ken with it. And I mean, it was, it was really well received. Um, can you, can you talk a bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was just an incredible and endlessly surprising experience, you know, positive and negative surprises, but from not expecting anything from it, let alone to sell it, let alone for it to get made, let alone for it to get made with um, Jody Foster and Mel Gibson. It was just, there's almost nothing that you can complain about. I mean, as you, as you said, it, it got made, it took us to Cannes. It was a sort of incredible once in a lifetime experience. Mm. And uh, I just, I felt like I was always just along for the ride and the ride was, was a lot more insane than any of us anticipated. Yeah. Well, and then, and then you moved to TV. So, so tell me about, um, moving to TV to sell Lone Star. Cause Lone Star, you sold in 2009, right? That's, that's just a year later. So, um, what made you decide that you wanted to do television? Well, I'd always loved TV. I mean, and especially really, really amazing Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Sopranos, The Wire. I mean, there was a lot of things that I could sit and watch like they were 20, 30, 40 hour movies. I mean, I, I just, I was so fascinated by it by how good TV was getting. And uh, because of the Beaver, I had an opportunity to just by saying that you love TV, they'll give you a chance to to come in and talk about what you might do. And so Lone Star was kind of that same thing. If if you're going to get one shot, what would be a show that you'd really be excited about, about watching? And I don't think I knew enough to know cable show versus network show. I just knew what kind of shows I loved. And Mm -hmm. I guess a lot of them turned out to be cable shows. So uh, when we went around and and pitched it, it got got interest from from three of the four networks. And ultimately, you know, Fox's winning pitch for taking it to Fox was 
you know, we know what this is. This is this is actually a cable show, and you're just trying to sneak it onto network. And <laughs> we actually love that idea. We're yeah. we're up for that. So if you come here, you'll make the kind of show you want to make, and we'll stay out of your way. And you know, so my experience with Lone Star is so different than I think what people expect because, well, it's of course crushing and disappointing to have it fail in the incredible way that it did. I felt super supported the whole time in mm. this mission to make, you know, a full on cable show with an anti-hero and some really complicated, not black and white dynamics. And, you know, it ultimately didn't work for any of us, but I felt like we all failed together. It wasn't that Fox didn't support us or Fox, you know, wanted to, if anything, Fox pushed us further in the cable direction. They asked that it be darker, that it be crazier, that if we were going to do this, we really go for it. And, you know, it didn't work, but there's not, I, I get the, the sense that there's not that many times over the course of a career where everybody just says, screw it, let's go for this. Mm. And Lone Star was one of them. Yeah. That was really great. Well, I, I think it's no secret that, that the network executives' favorite shows are cable shows. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Like they, they're the shows they like to watch, and I'm sure. And everything I've heard, anyway, is that is that they they just really want to try to tell that those kinds of stories on network TV. It just it doesn't always hit with the audiences, and but good on them for wanting to try. Yeah, I think they're like a lot of us. If you're around all of it, if you read everything and you watch everything, then you know you very quickly become tired of things that are just like each other and what you see is a lot of things that are extraordinarily similar so things that stand out and this is, i think this is really why one star was critically well received critics their job is to watch everything mm. so you know so much of it is is very very similar and trades in a narrow range and that doesn't mean it can't be really well done it just means if you're watching all of it you're going to feel like you've seen it before so I think it's just the newness of it is what appealed to critics. I just think that doesn't necessarily sync up with your average American's experience. They don't watch everything. They have a real job, a real life. And when they come home, they're not looking for something that pushes the boundaries of what entertainment is. They're just looking for a reliable hour of entertainment and release. And, and they can get that in a lot of different places because it doesn't feel, I think, to the average American like they're watching everything. So a lot of things that might seem uh, repetitive to an executive or a critic, I think, are just going to feel great to uh, your average TV viewer. And I think that's sort of the weird job of trying to do something you're excited about and yet that has the potential to find a really, really wide audience. Mm -hmm. I, I almost think that there there would be a path and if there's any networks listening I, like especially especially these companies that own both cable and and the 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 network paths to start something out on cable and then move it to network TV like to let it find an audience and then bring it to a bigger audience but anyway I, I digress <laughs> I think that may make more sense than the alternative I think what people you know in the wake of Lone Star and a number of other shows is that they Everyone says, well, that's, it's obviously a cable show. Why don't you just move it to cable? And I think what people feel to understand is the models are so different in terms of, you know, how they're financed and how they're made profitable. That mm. once you're on network, it's a certain type of machine and it's really hard to take that thing somewhere else. I think 
I actually think you'd have a better shot at doing exactly what you're describing. You know, if you if you could if you can make it on on cable, then that is probably something that you could you could port over to a network. But then I think the question would always be, why would you? You know, something that's mm. an incredibly successful oh, right, show right. on yeah. FX. You know, and, and something like The Walking Dead has really demonstrated that like there is no handicap to being on cable. The Walking Dead mops the floor with yeah. every other hour-long drama on yeah. everything. I mean, it kills the numbers that every network drama gets. So uh, it's it's reached a place where a channel is a channel, and if something has the potential to be a cultural phenomenon, it can be a cultural phenomenon with the numbers, not just with the critics, on a channel like AMC. Hmm. Well, but by the same token, I mean, you you signed a, an overall deal with with Fox. I mean, they they believe in your smart storytelling, obviously. Yeah, and I and I you know I think the reason I did that is because of uh, what we talked about with One Star. Like, I felt incredibly supported by these people, and the day after that show got canceled, they weren't uh, they weren't ushering me out the door. They were saying. We love that experience. It didn't work, but we enjoyed it. What else you got? And mm. I think when you run into people like that who are not only willing to take chances, but when they don't work out, they're ready to sign up for another one. Um, you want to work with those people, and, and, and that's why I stuck around. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I I couldn't wait to talk about Awake, and now we can. Um, I just loved the pilot. Um, and I, I, I said on Twitter, I'll, I'll say it here. I mean, drama for thousands of years at its core has always been about conflict, conflict. And, and what better conflict could you have than this man just having the, the two halves of, of his life wrenched from each other? Um, and, and so, Tell me a little bit about how you came up with this idea. And, and I, I should mention Lone Star and, and this one, both, both kind of about two realities, uh, but this one with a more sympathetic character. What, was that something you w- wanted at the outset? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of uh, awakening in a lot of ways, a, a reaction to what happened with Lone Star. I mean, I, I knew when I sat down to do it that I was writing a pilot for Network and having just tried the cable-style show on network and having had it not really work, I think I sort of examined a lot of the issues that that people thought might have been part of sinking Lone Star and and asked whether or not there was a way to address them with the next project. So I think Awake probably wouldn't be what it is without Lone Star. I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, they've got similar themes in terms of duality and a man caught between two worlds and, and utterly refusing to give up on either one of them. And there was a lot of that just floating around in my, my head as Lone Star ended. And, mm-hmm. and that got married to uh, to this idea of dreams and reality and the idea that, you know, your brain is really responsible for what you understand as being real. And you just, I don't think you realize how thin the tether is that holds you to the reality everybody else acknowledges. And so I got interested in this idea of not, not being sure uh, when you were awake or when you were asleep and mm. put all that in the, in the blender. And, but as you said, the, the main character, rather than being someone that you were not sure how you felt about, rather than being an anti-hero was somebody that you were from the outset, you should be extraordinarily sympathetic to. You root for him to somehow have everything. Whereas I think in, in Lone Star, 
that was what you were asked to do, but you felt really conflicted about it because mm. having everything for him was, was wrong and somehow having everything for Michael Britton feels feels right, if slightly crazy, it feels emotionally right. And, you know, I think the procedural element, something that was close-ended so that if the first time that you watched the show was in week eight because someone had relentlessly been telling you to check it out, you wouldn't understand everything, but there'd be enough there for you to enjoy an hour of television and mm. then think about whether or not you wanted to go back and catch up. And certainly one of the things that was difficult in trying to, you know, save or campaign for Lone Star was that by week two, if you were begging people to watch week, week three, you also needed to say, and would you mind going back and catching up on weeks one and two? Because you, you just, you, it was like reading a, a book. You couldn't start in the middle. There's only mm. one place you could begin. And, and further to that, I mean, a, a couple of things. Lone Star was a premise pilot. This wasn't. And also, um, Fox, uh, or sorry, NBC released the, the pilot early online. Talk about that. I'll do the first part first. Lone Star was a premise pilot in that you never, you didn't fully understand the main character's dilemma until the end of the first episode because he hadn't fully created that dilemma. And I felt like that was fine given the type of super serialized storytelling that, that Lone Star was going to be. I, I absolutely set my task for awake in that I would do a premise teaser, but that if in the first 10 minutes you didn't fully understand everything about what this show was going to be, then I had failed. You know, one of the mm. weird things that you do when you when you create a show is you, you test it, and you take it out, and you show it to these audiences who have a little dial that they turn up and down in reaction to what they're seeing. And testing Lone Star was one of the, the craziest, most nerve-wracking experiences because people didn't you could see from their their dials that they didn't understand what the show was until mm. the end. And while I had a really great reaction, you wish somehow that they had been locked in to what was coming. If they had understood how problematic the situation could be earlier, it felt like you could have kept more of them on board. And so with Awake, it just it all had to be done before the first commercial break. And and I think that's a a, a reason that. The Hulu and uh, and iTunes experience of releasing it early, I think, was helpful. I think that there was a lot of talk about it being a, a complicated or tricky or problematic concept for people that it would be hard for them to follow. And, and I, the response that I saw through those channels really it belied that. That people said, you know what, ten minutes in, you totally get it, mm. and then the story goes. So I think. Just sharing it with people so that they could say, you know what, it's, it's really, you don't have to be a genius. It's pretty simple. And, and hopefully that created some, some positive word of mouth. Yeah. Well, it, I, it is high concept in, in that, like, when I've told people about this idea, it's, it's very easy to get across. And as soon as you understand the conflict that this guy's in, people say, wow, I want to watch that. Um, but the interesting thing, actually, my son and his, and his girlfriend watched the pilot and, they said that where it really got interesting was when Britain said at the end that he doesn't want anything to change. And, and, and I right. love that. And that, and that absolutely is his conflict. But do you see anything scary about that in, in terms of maybe envisioning episode 100? Well, sure. I mean, he understands his situation in a static way, which is my wife is over here and my son is over here. And I'm going to hold on to this 
for all eternity. And I think what he doesn't get and where the, the conflict and drama and hopefully hundreds of episodes comes from is the fact that those two people aren't going to stand in one place. Their lives don't contain each other and they're going to run in opposite directions. And if Britain wants to hold on to both of those, he's going to increasingly be holding on to things that are going in opposite directions. And he ends up sort of being this Stretch Armstrong character in the middle being actively pulled apart. And I think that's really where, that's where the story lives for us. There's so much talk about what's real and what's not and how will we, how will we play with that mystery. And we do. I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously baked into the concept of the show and it's part of uh, examining sort of his mental state is about questioning what is and isn't real. But the conflict and the emotion for us comes from how do you live two lives that are running away from each other? How do you be that person in the middle? How do you be fully invested in two things that are that are somehow mutually exclusive? That's those are the kind of stories that we're hoping to tell and, and are most interested in. Yeah, and and great, great uh, cast too. I mean, <laughs> wow, wow, they they really sell it. Um, we we do have a few fan questions that were submitted that, that I'd like to get to. Um, one of them is uh, from Kiki. She said she she first uh, saw the first episode of Awake and loved it, and but she's wondering how you're doing your psych session research and if if it's is it important to you that it is real or or is this just to to play with the story? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's important that it has an air of truth. It's important that it feels plausible, and obviously. Each therapist has a, a really different take on his situation. One is much more supportive and one is much more combative, but they're both, they both take that stance in the, in the hopes that they can uh, help and guide him out of what they see as a, a bad situation. I think we've done a lot of research on the way the mind works and uh, the way that we process and understand reality, but there is nobody in a situation quite like his. So you end up making up a lot of reactions to problems that, that nobody else has had. So I think there's an element of, of fiction buried under what we hope is a, a feeling of truth. Mm, cool. And and we had a, a few questions on um, the room that you run, uh, and in particular, um, like, what's your staff like, and... and uh, um, is it well? Yeah, what's your staff like? How is it composed? How, how, what's the room like? It's a relatively small staff, and I think we we put together in the beginning what we hoped would be um, a group of people with a lot of experience. We knew it was going to be a very, very, very difficult show to figure out and write, and even if it meant having to write more often, we just wanted to keep the rotation such that. When you sent somebody away with a draft, you felt really, really strongly that they would deliver a great piece of material. The consequences of using highly experienced people like that is they tend to have other obligations. And so mm. um, throughout the season and our season went longer, we, you know, we shut down for a month to just sort of try to take in what it was that we had done and what we had learned and make sure that going forward, we were we were repeating the things that had worked and avoiding the things that hadn't. So 
that additional time meant that um, you know some of our our more experienced staff stepped away to do other projects. And I think what was most fascinating and, and heartening is the newest members of our staff, the youngest members, really, really stepped up phenomenally in those final few episodes and took a lot of responsibility and, and ownership of what um, what hopefully you'll see towards the end of the season. So it was a, an incredible experience, not just to make the show, but to watch people go from um, from brand new to uh, to really experienced and really reliable over the course of, of the season. Very, very cool. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. Do we have time for one or two more? Sure. Sure, cool. Um, Thomas asks, um, uh, what do you look for when hiring writers? What kind of samples do you like to read? You know, I'll read whatever your best sample is. I've, I've, I've hired people off of specs and and mostly off of pilots. And for me, it kind of goes like this. A, a pilot shows me everything in your toolbox. There's nothing harder than doing a pilot. You have to create all the characters. You have to create the whole world. You have to explain it to me very, very quickly and yet give me a sense of what your show is and how it's going to last for 100 episodes. If you can do all of that, you're an exceptionally talented individual and, and, you know, I'd be lucky to have you on staff. At the same time, I've read episodes, spec episodes of different shows that are so great. They play in my mind as if they were really shot. That's mm. you know, one of, one of my favorite episodes of The Sopranos, it turns out, was not an episode of The Sopranos. It's just a sample that someone submitted for Lone Star, and it was so brilliantly rendered. It's, wow. You know, not only did I see it all happen, it's my in my memory now, it's up there with with the best episodes of the show. So to me, the bar is sort of there. If you're going to do a spec of an episode... The only way it's really going to work for you is is not if people say, yeah, it's it's kind of just like that show. It's got to be like one of the best episodes of that show. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do that, then you really stand out. Otherwise, I think you're you're better off writing a pilot. I mean, there's so much going on there. I'll, I'll be a little more forgiving. I definitely understand the challenge of having to uh, create it all from scratch, but demonstrating that you can do all of that is also a really powerful tool in, in convincing people that... Um, somebody they want to talk to. Mm-hmm. And Dave Bullis asks, uh, what do you recommend to new writers who are, who are trying to pitch and write a new show slash pilot? Um, and I've, I've heard that you even, um, uh, and maybe this is legend, w- w- pretended you were a courier and dropped scripts off around town? Yes, I, and I wouldn't probably wouldn't recommend that, and that probably, it, that may not be repeatable, but, um, you know, I couldn't, I lived in Texas and didn't know how to, I just didn't know how to do anything. And so that seemed uh, oddly like the most logical way. I, I guess having worked in the uh, various places as an intern, I was aware that there was always in every office this sort of stack of material that no one was quite sure where it came from, and yet <laughs> they were scared to throw it away. So yeah. it gets it get put in a really tall stack, and someone, usually the intern, would eventually be assigned to to read it and, and see if there was anything good in there. And it always felt like to me, my goal was just to get in one of those stacks. And then I would have to count on the fact that 
the material would be good enough that one by one, the lowest member of the totem pole would hand it to someone above them until eventually someone at a much higher level would read it and say, I don't know where this came from, but it's actually worth pursuing. And <laughs> so I just I put my thing in a hundred stacks and, uh, and eventually somebody called. So that wouldn't be what you would recommend for pitching a new show. I would recommend whatever works. That happened to work for me. I don't know that it would. Uh, I don't know that it would work for anybody else. You know, it's the, the most common question is like, how do I get an agent? How do I get started? And it's the weirdest situation in that it works both ways. On the one hand, everyone feels like the system is closed. Everybody pulled up the ladder behind them, and and nobody wants to hear from new voices because there is no. There is no recognized channel for how to submit your material. How do you get started? I mean, everybody says you can submit query letters, but query letters get thrown away and you can't submit scripts. And, you know, it's like you have to know somebody to get stuff handed in. So it feels very, very, very closed off. But the irony is on the other side of the fence, people are desperate for new talent, new voices. Everybody wants to be the person who finds an undiscovered gem first and says, I brought this person in. So they're actually hungry for new talent and aspiring people. It's just there's no good system for matching those two groups up. So it's inevitable that, you know, everybody's how did you get represented story is crazy and different because mm. it, it almost seems to take magic. And I think that's the one, that's the one reason everybody says you just, you have to live in LA because you have to be around the system, you know, pushing in at a hundred different places to eventually find that weak point where you slip through the wall because there just, there isn't a door. Hmm. Very cool. Well, that is a great place to end up. And uh, I really, really appreciate you taking this time. And hey, I, I also really appreciate you not taking the safe road and bringing such interesting television. I mean, it, it's definitely TV that I love to watch. And it's uh, Thursday nights on NBC. And anybody who's listening obviously has to check it out. And uh, you're on Twitter, uh, Killin' 8. That's it. Cool. So so definitely follow Kyle on Twitter and get all the great updates and uh my my hope anyway my hope is i i know i think you guys got a 1.9 um with the first episode my hope is that there were a whole bunch of people that checked out the pilot online and maybe didn't think they had to watch live that day and that they'll all merge together with uh, that 1.9 and be higher on the second week so well the great thing about tv is you never have to wait more than a week to find out if you're right or wrong so <laughs> we'll know cool. soon yeah well it's, i really really appreciate it and best of luck to you Kyle. and i and i really hope this goes many seasons thanks a lot man i really appreciate the interview okay bye-bye and that was my interview with kyle killen i hope you enjoyed it and if you want to see awake well, why wouldn't you? It's an awesome show. Thursday nights on NBC. Check it out. Make sure you do see the pilot. It is available online. And then watch all the episodes after that. Make sure let's support this great, great show. Do follow Kyle on Twitter, at Killin8. And while you're doing that, follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web.